We're continuing to look at God's grace as being shown in the life of David. And last week on Easter, we examined the hope that David had in the resurrection and how that led to David living life, living life confidently. Well, here in this passage in 1 Samuel 24, David continues to be on the run. And at this stage in his life, he is learning what it means to live confidently. That's what we're focusing on here this morning. Next week, just a heads up for you, um, one of the church planners that we as a church have been, spo- have been supporting named Russ Whitfield will be here next Sunday morning and he'll be preaching. God's been using him uh, to plant a multi-ethnic church right outside of Howard University in, in D.C. Um, Russ, God has been using him in a tremendous way there and he's also, he's a good speaker He's a, and a man that God has been used for fruitful ministry. So I encourage you um, just to look forward to that next Sunday. Here today we are focused on 1 Samuel chapter 24. David continues to be on the run. And despite God's regular and repeated and miraculous deliverance of him, David is still on the run. And we find ourselves here this passage where he is hiding in a cave. This is what the text records. When Saul returned from following the Philistines, he was told, Behold, David is in the wilderness of En Gedi. Then Saul took 3,000 chosen men out of all Israel, and he went to seek David and his men in front of the wild, wild goat rocks. And he came to the sheepfolds, by the way, where there was a cave, and Saul went in to relieve himself. Now David and his men were sitting in the innermost parts of the cave. And the men of David said to him, Here is the day of which the Lord said to you, Behold, I will give your enemy into your hand. And you shall do to him as it shall seem good to you. Then David arose and stealthily cut off a corner of Saul's robe. And afterward, David's heart struck him because he had cut off a corner of Saul's robe. He said to his men, the Lord forbid forbid that I should do this thing to my Lord, the Lord's anointed, to put out my hand against him, seeing he is the Lord's anointed. So David persuaded his men with these words and did not permit them to attack Saul. And Saul rose up and left the cave and went on his way. Afterward, David also arose and went out of the cave and called after Saul, My lord the king. And when Saul looked behind him, David bowed his face to the earth and paid homage. And David said to Saul, Why do you listen to the words of men who say, Behold, David seeks your harm. Behold, this day your eyes have seen how the Lord gave you today into my hand in the cave. And some told me to kill you, but I spared you. I said, I will not put out my hand against my Lord, for he is the Lord's anointed. See, my father, see the corner of your robe in my hand. For by the fact I cut off the corner of your robe and did not kill you, you may know and see there is no wrong or treason in my hands. I have not sinned against you, though you hunt my life to take it. May the Lord judge between me and you. May the Lord avenge me against you. But my hand shall not be against you. As the proverb of the ancients say, says, out of the wicked comes wickedness, but my hand shall not be against you. After whom 
Has the king of Israel come out? After whom do you pursue? After a dead dog? After a flea? May the Lord therefore be judge and give sentence between me and you and see to it and plead my cause and deliver me from your hand. As soon as David had finished speaking these words to Saul, Saul said, Is this your voice, my son David? And Saul lifted up his voice and wept. He said to David, You are more righteous than I, for you have repaid me good, whereas I have repaid you evil. And you have declared this day how you have dealt well with me, and that you did not kill me when the Lord put me into your hands. For if a man finds his enemy, will he let him go away safe? So may the Lord reward you with good for what you have done to me this day. And now, behold, I know that you shall surely be king, and that the kingdom of Israel shall be established in your hand. Swear to me, therefore, by the Lord, that you will not cut off my offspring after me, and that you will not destroy my name out of my father's house. And David swore this to Saul. Then Saul went home, but David and his men went up to the stronghold. Let's pray for God's blessing on his word. Heavenly Father, we ask for you to send your spirit. Lord, we have set aside this time this week to be fed by your word. And we are powerless to do so apart from the working of your spirit. So Lord, we ask that you would change us, that your spirit would speak to us. Lord, that you would grow our faith, our confidence, and our trust and reliance upon you. For the honor of your name, we pray. Amen. People seem to believe that they have an an inalienable right to be happy. I want what I want, and I want it now, writes psychologist Kim Hall. No one wants to wait for anything. And for the most part, no one has to anymore. Waiting is interpreted as pain. People walk into my office and say they are Christians, but I see no difference except that they want to be happy, and now they expect God to make it so. The problem is that in this country, you can have whatever you want when you want it most of the time. People like the fact that they can buy a 50-foot tree and instantly plant it in their yard. Why on earth would anyone want to wait on relationships or want to wait on God? Why wait for anything when you can have what you want right now? You can have it right now when you want it. Why wait for anything? Well, the text shows us several reasons. The first is this, is that an opportunity before you does not equal God's will. Notice David's situation. David, who is the one who has been the anointed to be the king of Israel, the one who has been anointed as the one through whom the promises of God for the world would be fulfilled. But David is on the run from the king of Israel, who he would succeed And he is on the run, and they are hiding currently in a cave. And he came to the sheepfolds, by the way, where there was a cave, and Saul went in to relieve himself. One thing to say about the Bible is that it's never boring. Now, David and his men were sitting 
in the innermost parts of the cave. And the men of David said to him, Here is the day of which the Lord said to you, Behold, I will give your enemy into your hand, and you shall do to him as it shall seem good to you. So what is happening here? Saul is in process, and while Saul is in process, there is this spirited debate going on about the will of God for David, about the will of God for David's men, and also about the will of God for Saul's life. And the argument, according to David's men, is who could not see what God has done? Who could not see what God has brought about? I mean, those of you that seek God's will and always ask for a neon sign, I mean, you don't need, to, you don't need a neon sign in this situation to see what God is doing. So the argument went. The thinking was somehow went along the lines of this, that God has orchestrated, God has providentially given you an opportunity. And if he didn't want you to do it, why did he give you the opportunity? That is, why would this have happened if God didn't want me to do it? You know, it's this kind of backward thinking that Christians deceive themselves with time in and time again. There have been countless times that people have that I've been involved in a situation where some Christian has had this backwards, this type of backwards thinking, well, God gave me the opportunity, so therefore he must want me to do it, because if he didn't want me to do it, why would God present the situation before me? For example, why would God allow me to be so attracted to this man if he didn't want me to leave my husband? Why would God, if God didn't want me to steal the money, why was it left on the counter? And the thought is, if God didn't want me to do these things, why was there an opportunity to do them before me? If God didn't want me to do this, why was there this situation? And there's a simple answer. Obedience. It's quite simple. It's obedience. Because opportunity does not equal, necessarily does not equal God's will. The New Testament writers wrestled with some of the same idea. James First chapter, chapter verses 2 and following. He says, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And that steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. The argument continues. He picks it up in verse 13. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. If God didn't want me to do this, why did he give me the opportunity? Let no one say... When he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desires. And when those opportunities are faced before you to get what you want in a sinful way, the simple question is this, is your faith in you or is your faith in God? Do you live life trusting in you, or do you live life trusting in God? Do you live life on the basis of God helps those who help themselves, which is the most readily recognized Bible verse in America? It's not in the Bible, to be clear. There's a quote from Ben Franklin, who it's attributed to. But do you live life on the basis of God helps those who help themselves? So if there's this opportunity for me to do this and I want this, then why not? God helps those who help themselves. Or 
Do you live on the basis that God helps those who wait for him? Isaiah 64.4. From of old, no one has heard or perceived by the ear. No eye has seen a God beside you who acts for those who wait for him. A God who acts for those who wait for him, for those who are in the situation when they have the opportunity to get what they want, but to do so would be sinful, who do not do, though, but rather who wait upon the Lord. There is no God like you, a God who acts for those who wait for him. Do you see what's going on here? Sin is never justified. It is never justified. And a question to ask yourself is, do you abhor evil? Do you hate your sin? Or do you justify it? Do you justify your rage and your cussing and your self-indulgence and crude behavior? Do you justify your sin by saying, well, well that's just what's needed in this situation. Sometimes you just got to do what you just got to do. And that's what you got to do right here and right now. There are some Christians that see themselves and think, they say, well, you know what? Yeah, I mean, that's just what I got to do. I mean, I'm, I'm not that good of a person to do something else. What they're saying is that in this situation, my sin is excusable. I can't be expected to honor the Lord in this situation. I can't be expected to live for him. I can't be expected to, to act rightly because of the situation that I'm faced with. Sin is never excusable. And somehow the American church... Evangelical Christians, Christians, we have, have embraced this bizarre idea, this idea that we think that somehow any sort of suffering, and what I mean by suffering is something that you don't like, which really isn't even suffering, but suffering, hindrance, frustration, despair, take your pick. Any sort of thing that you don't like, that any sort of thing that you don't like, any sort of suffering, any sort of challenge, any sort of trouble, obviously is not God's will for you. I mean, we really think that. That if there's any difficulty in my life, that obviously this must not be God's will for my life. Because the Christian life, in our warped thinking, goes that the Christian life is that if you're really following Jesus, you get to some sort of higher plane where you have transcended hindrance, frustration, and despair. Or as the psychologist said, you expect to be happy, and God's role is to make it that way for you. Along that line. But to follow Jesus is not to follow him to the American dream. No, it's to follow him to the cross. And yes, beyond the cross, the resurrection. But it's to follow him to the cross and to follow him where he leads. Opportunity doesn't necessarily equal God's will. Second thing is this, is that when we seek to pursue God's will, when we seek to attain what God would have for us, we must pursue God's will in God's way. I think what's a particular temptation for us is when we think that there's a good thing that God's doing, a good thing that we want, but we pursue God's will not in God's way, but rather we pursue God's will in the devil's way. And this is what David was tempted with. He, his men were saying to him, here he is. Behold, I will give you into your hand. Like, kill him, slay him. This is what you should do right now. 
But David knew it was wrong. Now, why was it, we might say, why was this wrong for David? I mean, after all, Saul, was David, Saul had declared that David was an enemy, had committed treason. Saul's running around trying to kill him. They're doing this little jig and jog where they're mo- literally other times moving around opposite sides of a mountain, getting away from each other. But David says this. After he cut off the corner of Saul's robe, he said David's heart struck him because he had cut off the corner of Saul's robe. He said to his men, the Lord forbid that I should do this thing to my Lord, the Lord's anointed, to put out my hand against him, seeing that he is the Lord's anointed. Is that David understood that Saul, though David himself had been anointed to be king, Saul still was the anointed one who was the king of Israel. And as the anointed one, God had set King Saul apart. He had consecrated him to God, regardless of Saul's uh, disgrace and defilement of that. And so for anyone to touch or to defile or to attack the anointed one was to do so to God himself and to remove the Lord from his place and from his rightful place. So David says, no way, I'm not touching the Lord's anointed one. Now David's men, who were tired of hanging out in a cave, didn't like this answer. So what it says in verse 7 is that so David persuaded his men with these words and did not permit them to attack Saul. That's rather weak English translation. You can translate the Hebrew like this. So David tore his men apart with these words and did not permit them to attack Paul. David ripped his men to shreds with these words and did not permit them to attack Saul. And Saul rose up and left the cave and went on his way. Of course, Saul is oblivious to all of the stuff that's going on. You see, the test for David is that David had the promise of God given to him. He had the promise that he was the anointed one, that he was going to inherit the kingdom of Israel, the kingdom of the people of God. He was going to inherit that kingdom. But what David did not know is David did not know how the kingdom was going to come to him. He did not know how it was going to come about. So the temptation for David is to attain God's will in the devil's way. David wasn't the only one that was faced with this temptation. David's greater son, his descendant, the Lord Jesus, had a similar one. When he was being tempted in the wilderness by the devil, the devil says to him, the devil took Jesus to a very high mountain, and he showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. Jesus, when is going to get all the kingdoms of the world in their glory, that had been promised to him. But the temptation for Jesus was, was he going to get God's will in God's way or God's will in the devil's way? And the way of the devil promised that he didn't have to wait. He didn't have to suffer. He didn't have to have challenges. He didn't have to have, go through difficulties. The offer was for God's will in the devil's way. It's similar for us. is that God's will must come to pass in our lives in God's way. God's will must be brought about, must be attained in the ways that God approves. You know, I mean, if you consider David, I mean, David was the man, you know? I mean, he slayed Goliath. I mean, he was the man like nobody's business. I mean, David had been anointed king. It was David who God had declared that he was going to raise up a man after his own heart. It was through David that God was going to promise that the messianic pro- promise, the promise 
of the Messiah, the promise that God would redeem the whole world, that this was going to come through David. I mean, David had been set apart like nobody's business, right? I mean, David was the man par excellence. I mean, if anybody could have a claim to the throne, it was David, right? And David knew that God was going to set him apart for this. But at this point in time, David was not the captain of the ship yet. David was not the king of Israel yet. David was not in charge yet. And at this point in time, God had someone else in that position. And David understood that as long as God had somebody else in that position, even though David and God and everyone else knew that David was the man, David knew that until God made that happen, his role, David's role, was to promote the success of the Lord's anointed one, who was King Saul. Put it differently. To promote the success, the flourishing, and the prosperity of a wicked, incompetent ruler who had led God's people astray. And that's who David promoted and served. And that's what you see David doing. All the days before this is that he, he served Saul. He sought to have wins and victories for Saul on behalf of Saul so that Saul would flourish. That's all that he did. You know, there's so many ways that this relates to us. You know, I think about Christians who are working under godless, incompetent leaders. I were thinking about Christians who think they're working about under godless, incompetent leaders, right? And what's the temptation? The temptation is to, in the moment, or even if you're in a position that you know that you're going to eventually get the position above you. And what's the temptation in that position? And you don't like what the guy's above you doing. You think he's evil. You think he's incompetent. She or he, he or she. You think they're wicked. And so what's the temptation is to subvert, undermine, bite their back. Build your uh, approval among those that are under you or those that are going to be under you to subvert the person that's above you. But what are you called to do is to follow the example that David shows us. Is that until the Lord puts you in that position, one thing's clear, you're not in that position. And someone else is. And until you are, your role is to serve, to work for their success, to work for their flourishing, even to your own sacrifice. A couple years ago, there was someone in our church here at Cornerstone who was leading a, a contract negotiation. And at one point, people on both sides of the contract said to him, why are you doing this? And they said, don't you understand that this is not in your best interest for this to go through? And he said, yes, but the comp- my company doesn't employ me to do what's in my best interest. My company employs me to act in the best interest of my company And this is in the best interest of my company, though not myself personally. And went forward with it. Do you know what happened after that? People said, we can't let a guy like this go. Right? Why? Because they're sitting seeking to say, no, my role is to serve and to serve those who are above me. Let's take a different example. How about children living in your parents' house? That one day, hopefully, you're going to be on your own. One day, you're going to have to make all the decisions. You know what? One day, you're actually going to probably have to make the decisions for your parents. And you're going to have to take care of your parents. And you're going to have to make decisions that they don't want to make. One day, that day is going to come. But right now, if you're living in your, under your parent, in your parents' house, guess what? That day has not come yet. I mean, maybe it's really, it is possible 
that you are smarter, more educated, have better insights, you really know what's going on. You know how things should be run and you know how things should be done. I'll give that to you. Maybe you do. I mean, Josiah was, what, six years old when he became king of Israel? But the reality is, is that you're not there yet. And until you are, the God-honoring thing to do is to do what David did. is to honor, to serve, and to promote the flourishing of the one who God has put in that position of authority. It's to pursue God's will for your life in God's way. That you pursue both the ends that God has for you, and you pursue it in the means that God has appointed. I mean, we pray for this, don't we? Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Your kingdom come. That's the end result. We're praying for the end result to come. Your kingdom come. And how is that to come? Your will be done. That the means by which your kingdom comes, that the end result will be done according to your will. That's what we pray. God's will must be done in God's way. Third thing in this passage is this, is that as we seek to deal with these opportunities and temptations before us, is that God must be the judge of our lives, not our circumstances. Verse 8, notice what David says. It says, afterward, David also rose and he went out of the cave. He called after Saul and he said, my Lord, the king. And when Saul looked behind him, David bowed with his face to the earth and paid homage. And David said to Saul, why do you listen to the words of men who say, behold, David seeks your harm? Behold, this day your eyes have seen how the Lord gave you today into my hand in the cave. He's acknowledging God's orchestrating the circumstances. He's acknowledging God's providence. How the Lord gave you today in my hand. And some told me to kill you. There was, the, there was God's providence and there was the opportunity to do so. And there was strong public opinion that would have made a lot of people happy because they were sick of living in a cave. And some told me to kill you, but I spared you. I will not put out my hand against the Lord, for he is the Lord's anointed. See my father, see the corner of your robe. This is like, here is the proof that I have acted with integrity. That I have sought the Lord's will and the Lord's way. But what's remarkable in David's speech here is where David's confidence and security is found. We see it in verse 12. May the Lord judge between me and you. And may the Lord avenge me against you, but my hand shall not be against you. David is not trying to find his security that the opinion of Saul is going to change. He's not going to try to find his security that the opinion of his men have done the, that in, in his men's opinion that he's done the right thing. Now David looks at the circumstances and the conflict between the two of them, and his declaration is this: "May the Lord be the judge between you and me. May the Lord avenge me against you." And again, in a moment, he says it again: "May the Lord therefore be judge and give sentence between me and you, and see to it." And plead my cause and deliver me from your hand. Is that David lived his life before the face of the Lord. That he lived his life with the conscious awareness that he was living before the judge of heaven and earth. And when he was acting with integrity, he could actually rightly say, May the Lord judge between us. Because my hope and confidence is not in the security that you, O King Saul, are going to give to me. My hope and security and my confidence is in the Lord and in him alone. And yes, there will be justice. 
And yes, there will be vengeance. And yes, it will not be me, but it will be God who brings it about. David would not take matters into his own hands. David would not pursue some sort of vigilante justice. He knew that the case was in God's hands, and since it was in God's hands, it was God's to prosecute, it was God's to decide, it was God's to judge, and David was confident, rightly so, that God would judge in his favor because he had sought the Lord's will and the Lord's way. John Murray, biblical scholar, godly brother, passed away some years ago. He writes, the essence of ungodliness is that we presume to take the place of God to take everything into our own hands. It is faith to commit ourselves to God, to cast all our care upon him, and to vest all our interests in him. In reference to the matter at hand, the wrongdoer of which we are the victims, the way of faith is to recognize that God is judge and to leave the execution of vengeance and retribution to him. That is to entrust ourselves and to live that God must be the one and God actually is the judge and the judge of our lives. But let me be perfectly clear. Entrusting ourselves to God's justice, waiting upon the Lord, is not a passive process. You see, what we typically do when we're faced with a difficult circumstance is what we typically do is we don't talk to God about it and we do whatever we want. We don't talk to God, and we do whatever we want. What David did is David talked to God and then did what the Lord wanted. Here's what David wrote about his experience in the cave. He said, Behold, God is my helper. The Lord is the upholder of my life. He will return the evil to my enemies in your faithfulness. Put an end to them. In your faithfulness, wipe them out. That's pretty strong. Here's something else David wrote. Oh God, break the teeth in their mouths. Tear out the fangs of the young lions, O Lord. Let them vanish like water that runs away when he aims his arrow. Let them be blunted. Let them be like the snail that dissolves into slime. Like the stillborn child who never sees the sun. Sooner than your pots can feel the heat of thorns, whether green or ablaze, may he, may he sweep them away. Now, sometimes people uh, object or are shocked by these prayers. And they're shocked by that these prayers are in the word of God. And yes, these prayers, as part of the hymn book of the people of Israel that they'd sing when they come to church together, in these prayers, yes, they are emotional. Yes, they're hot-tempered and even violent. But they're also obedient. They're also obedient. Because what is a prayer to do? What is a child of God to do except what God commands him to do and to commit his vengeance to God and then act as God would have him act? That is, if the Lord's, if Yahweh's crushed the Lord, if the Lord's crushed and afflicted people cannot plead their case in his hands and expect him to bring just vengeance in their behalf, what hope can they have? Only a God who rights the wrongs inflicted on his people can be their well-proved help in troubles. 
You see what David's doing? Is that he's living his life before the judge of heaven and earth. And in the, situ- the situation that he's dealing with, what he does is he doesn't do what we do of not talking to God and doing whatever we want. What David does is he talks to God. And he expresses how he feels. And he expresses the vengeance that he desires. But he entrusts that vengeance and that anger. He entrusts it to God. And then acts with in- integrity and love and mercy and justice towards King Saul. But what is most remarkable about the Lord is that not only does God take vengeance for his people, as his people entrust their vengeance to him, but God takes vengeance on behalf of his people. You see, in Jesus, the vengeance that is due for the wrongs that you have done And the wrongs that I have done, the vengeance that is due for the offenses that you have committed is not exacted upon you. But rather, God, God actually takes his own vengeance upon himself in the crucifixion of Jesus Christ on the cross who he then victoriously rose from the grave. God actually takes the vengeance that is rightfully due for the wrong that we have done and the wrongs that we have committed against other people, and he not only hears our vengeance, he not only carries the vengeance that we would have, and yes, we'll bring about justice, but some of the justice that he brings about for you and for me and for anyone who calls upon the name of Jesus, even if they have offended you, is that that vengeance is exacted upon Jesus Christ on the cross on your behalf. To tie this all together very simply is that if you serve the God who not only takes vengeance for you, but takes vengeance on behalf of you, if that is the God that you serve, regardless of how tempting the opportunity is before you, regardless of the opportunity in front of you, God is not only worth waiting for, he is worth living for. Let's pray together. No eye has seen, no ear has heard a God like you who acts for those who wait for him. Father, I hate waiting. I want what I want when I want it. And for most of my day, I get what I want when I want it. And if I don't, I make sure that in the future that I'll get it when I want it. And yet, Lord, you and your mercy and you and your grace have called me to wait upon you. Have called me to wait upon you and in so doing realizing that the world doesn't, the universe doesn't revolve around me. But that it revolves around you. And you've called me to wait upon you and to seek you and to pray to you and to honor you and no matter the situation that I'm faced with. That, Lord, that I would not only seek your will, but I would attain your will in your way. And I would do so because you are the judge of the earth who searches the heart and knows the mind. And not only are you the judge of the earth, but you are the judge of the earth who has brought about justice and my pardon. Father, may we wait upon you. Father, may our hope be in you. 
May we live every moment before your face knowing that you are our God and that Jesus has forgiven us and purchased our justice. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.